So we are going to finish the gospel of Mark today, uh, finishing up chapter 15 and moving all through chapter 16. You're going to see something in this section that's kind of interesting. Um, Some of you have certainly seen it before. Many of you may not have. But really in the middle of chapter 16, there's this phrase um, that is not in the original text, but it'll say, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include Mark 16, 9 through 20. I just want to get that out of the way really quick. The reality is many people look at the end of chapter 16 in the gospel of Mark and go, did Mark really write this? It doesn't read like he actually wrote this. That's what it means by not being a part of the earliest manuscripts. When they found them, this wasn't a part of it, but many things were there. Let me just tell you something really briefly about the reality of the doctrine of Scripture. This is studied intensely by scholars. The whole Bible is. But the church believes fundamentally that God worked in his spirit through the church to put together what's called the canon, and that's not just a big gun that shoots big black balls, but the canon is the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, and we believe wholeheartedly that this is the word of God given to us. And the church has added this in the midst of it and believed that this is part of the scripture. So we are going to deal with it, but we don't deal with it blindly. We understand the challenges that are a part of this, and nothing in this back half of the gospel of Mark teaches anything other than what that contradicts doctrine, sound doctrine of Christian teaching, or that would lead us to believe anything differently than what the church has forever believed. There are two weird things in there about handling snakes and drinking poison. Let me just start by saying this is kind of like when on TV when they go, we don't recommend this at home. I don't recommend playing with snakes or drinking poison in the midst of that, and you're always to interpret the Bible through its whole, not through just specific verses. And so if you have any deeper questions about that, uh, feel free to ask me Um, afterwards. I won't be able to give you a full answer, but um, I can direct you to some good places if you were to email me. So on that note, um, let's begin. This is incredibly, incredibly important. Uh, this section of scripture. So let's start at that. You have to understand the scene that we walk into in Mark chapter 15, where we're going to start in verse 39, is we're walking into an environment of intense confusion, unbelievable chaos, post-execution of multiple criminals, one being Jesus. It's such chaos and such confusion that Mark chapter 15, verse 33, says that there was darkness over the whole land. So you do yourself a disservice when you read the Bible and you don't slow down long enough to understand what the author is trying to truly show you about the truth of the passage, but about the moment. Darkness, chaos, confusion, and curiosity. One of the things that we do when we slow ourselves down, the service we provide ourselves, is we realize really quickly that what they're going through in the midst of the gospel and these real events, these real historical accounts, is not that different than what we're going through today. So everybody sitting in this room, at some level, tastes darkness, tastes this reality of the world that feels dark, and not the way it's supposed to be. We all feel sometimes inside our own souls the chaos, 
the confusion, the curiosity, the wonderment of why is this just not feel right in ourselves? Many of us feel it in our homes. This doesn't feel the way it's supposed to be. This isn't right. Why is there the fighting? Why don't they understand me? Why is everything so hard? We're not different than these people were in the States. We feel the darkness. We feel the chaos. We feel the confusion, which leads to, in all of us, a curiosity. Better word would be a longing. We experience this longing. In simple words, if we experience the darkness of, man, that just isn't right, we experiencing the longing, we experience the longing for things to be made right, for stuff to be fixed. In simple terms, you may just say, I just want things to be easier. So that's the scene we enter into. And in verse 39, it says that there was a centurion there when Jesus died who stood facing him and saw in this way he breathed his last. He looked at Jesus as Jesus breathed his last breath. And you have to understand this. This Roman soldier says, truly this man was the son of God. So we're going to look at three groups of people. Right now, a Roman soldier, his Roman leader, Pilate, determined on behalf of the authority vested in him through the kingdom of Rome to put Christ on a cross. And this soldier looks at this man die and through his dying concludes this man's the son of God. Then we see this group of women There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger, and Hostess and Solomon. When he was in Galilee, they, these women, followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with them to Jerusalem. So now we've had a Roman soldier, now we have women. Something you need to understand about women in that day is they were viewed... in many ways like trash. They weren't viewed as credible witnesses. They were viewed in every, from the home to society, at best as servants. So the level at which the gospel writers in here, the book of Mark, focuses in on women, women who certainly felt like they had way more to offer their homes, way more to offer their society, that they were far more intelligent than anybody gave them credit for. While society says no, God is saying yes. He focuses in on these women. And these are everyday, normal women that society was not looking at, was not esteeming. And yet these women feel a chaos, a confusion, a darkness deep enough to drive them towards Jesus, even in the midst of immediate danger, all the way unto death, they keep following him unto his death. Then we enter this scene and there's another man, a religious leader, a Jewish religious leader at that named Joseph of Arimathea. It says, before evening came, the day of preparation, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, verse 43, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now, this says Joseph of Arimathea, who was a member of the council. Most commentators would say likely 
Joseph of Arimathea being a part of the council was that he was a part of the Sanhedrin. So now think about this. A Rome, Roman soldier who was a part of the authority of Rome who put Jesus on the cross. There was another group who was a part of putting Jesus on the cross, and it was the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of the day, who were trying, who were accusing Jesus, and then who were saying, tearing their clothes, saying he's guilty. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. Likely the gospels say he's not one, he wasn't there voting with all of them, but he is so taken, a Jewish leader, so taken by Jesus himself, that he moves with great courage to go to the Roman leader. So he had enough authority to get to the Roman leader of Pilate, and it says he has such courage to ask for Jesus' body. Now think of this type of courage. Jesus has been condemned as a criminal. Joseph of Arimathea walks to Pilate and says, I want his body, which the text says takes great courage. What's the great courage? One against Rome. They just condemned this man as a criminal. They could look at him and be like, who do you think you are asking for the body of a criminal? Then his very own people, the Jewish religious leaders, have to be going, who are you? He got what he deserved. And he is so taken by Jesus. He so experiences the chaos, the confusion, the darkness, that there's something in Jesus that leads to his longing that he wants to go towards him even in his death. Just like the centurion did, who's from a totally different view of the world, just as these average, ordinary, everyday women who have no power did, this man with power, religious power, also moves towards Jesus with great courage. Now, there's something I want you to see in these three groups. Every human being, every human being who sits in this room, Every human being who's spoken of in these scriptures and all the human beings who weren't spoken of these scriptures, from this point to now, every human being that's ever existed has a longing within them, a understanding that things just aren't right in me, in my immediate circle of relationships, in the state or province I live in, in the nations we live in, in the world that we live in. They all know something's not right and we all have this longing for things to be made right. Now, here's what we don't agree on. We don't agree on how it's going to be made right. And there's unbelievable disagreement, right? Just watch the TV. Listen to the news. Follow social media. Have a dinner with friends. We don't all agree. Or be a parent of four kids. So yesterday's a perfect example of how the world operates in our disagreement. We all have a longing of what we want to do on Saturday. The boys have flag football playoffs yesterday. I have two boys and two girls. The boys are older. Um, Braden will turn 10 next week. Yale's eight. Lucy's four. Harmony's three. And this happens all the time, from picking where we're going to eat to what we're going to do on Saturday. The boys wake up eager to play in their flag football playoff tournament. It's single elimination. You can play up to four games. You have to win a game to go on. They wake up Braden hadn't been feeling good, but at the end, he wants to go and he's excited. Yale's been up since 4.30 in his Saints uniform, and we're like, go to bed. I, I, I desperately want to go, it's eight-year-old flag football, dude. Don't wake up at 4.30, but he's ready to go. He's bouncing around. We're going to go. We're going to go. They're ready. That's what they want to do on their Saturday, for the whole Saturday to be taken up with their flag football. Haley gets the girls up, gets them in the car. What are we doing? There's a very different view of what they want to do with their Saturday. What are we doing? We're going to watch flag football in Lucy, the four-year-old. Oh, no. 
I hate flag football. This is awful. How many games do they have today? And Haley looks in the back and she's trying to explain to her, this is not like other weeks, hun. I mean, if they win, they move on. Oh, move on. I want them to lose. And Haley says, well, that's not very nice. And here's what Lucy does. She throws her head back, looks up in the air, and she goes, God almighty. <laughs> now, what's so incredible about that moment is it's hilarious on one part. On the other part, it's very much what the world does. Whoever you call God, whoever they call God. But at many points, we experience the anguish, whether it's as little as what we're going to do with a Saturday are as big as, look at what's happening in our world or in our home or in my soul. And we throw our hands back and go, God Almighty. It's this longing in the human heart for things to be fixed. And you see in this passage, the Roman centurion experienced it. And yet his worldview was, if everybody would just submit to Rome, I'll give my life for it. And yet a man dying disrupts him enough to go, a man dying disrupts him enough to go, he's the son of God. Women, everyday women who are being oppressed are so curious and taken by this man Jesus that in their longing, just that every human being has, they move on and they continue to move towards him in his death all the way to a religious leader named Joseph of Arimathea and it carries on today. Every human heart longs for things to be fixed. What we disagree on is what will fix it. What will make it right? And I want you to hear something really specifically. The emotions you and I feel in our gut of guts of what is right and what is wrong and how it directly affects us, we care about because it affects us. It's real world in real life. And folks, hear me on this. Many of you experience your faith, even in Christianity, in a way that doesn't really affect your real life. And many of you have a question on whether or not faith really applies to the streets, really applies, is really concrete, like really affects my world, my body, my family, my job, my heart, my emotions. Does it really matter? Or is it just about in the end, I get to go to a place or not go to a place? Or in the end, different religious views, I dissolve and end up as a part of the world. Or in the end, I may be brought back as something else. Or in the end, I mean, in the end, everybody has these different worldviews, but it's all unto the point that it makes a difference. But how much of a difference? How concrete? Because what human beings work through, every one of us work through, is you work towards and for that which you believe will make your life better, or to say it really simply, what will make you happier. That's fact. And that's what the centurion was doing. That's what the women are doing. That's what Joseph of Arimathea was doing. Even in his courage, he went, there's something here. Even in the midst of the darkness, the chaos, and the confusion, he went, I'm with great courage going to go through it because something else is there. So Joseph takes him, buries him in a tomb. They roll a big stone over the entrance of the tomb, verse 46. Then Mary Magdalene and Mary... The mother of hosts saw where he was laid. So again, it focuses in on the women. They see where he was. But we see this great longing of every human heart. Now, we come 
to the main part of the Christian story. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salem brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. So again, see the scene, Joseph of Arimathea with great courage. Now the women continue to go and come to the tomb with spices because what they did when they buried someone, this is the way it happened then, they would cover them in spices. Today it would be essential oils, right? They cover them with spices so that the body wouldn't stink. They'd put them in the tomb for a year till the body decomposed and then there were only bones left and then they'd go back and take the bones and put them in a box and keep them there. That's what they were trying to do. So in the end, they moved towards this tomb. There was a huge rock rolled over it. But Mark wants you to see something. Remember when we started at the very beginning of verse 15, or sorry, chapter 15, the section in chapter 15, verse 33, it says, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour in verse 33. Darkness, get this picture in your mind, darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Now look at this. Verse 2 of 16, and very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, darkness over the whole land, now there's a new day, the sun rises, and it's a new week. Mark is trying to get every one of us into this point of like, darkness was there, the day has gone, but light has dawned. A new day has come. The Bible speaks about what we're about to look to and look specifically at like this. Darkness turning to light. Death turning to life. Curiosity being given meaning. Chaos being brought peace. And it says it's relevant from your soul to your home to your workplace, to the world, okay? New day. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Hear this. So they're walking along going, there's something we need to do. Being driven out of their longing for things to be made right. Being driven by their curiosity about Jesus, even unto death. They're moving to do a job that needed to be done, but then they go, my God, who's going to move the stone? That stone's huge. Who's going to remove the stone? When I read this uh, section, I thought to myself, the moment when Jesus gives a really hard teaching and the disciples in their own way at that moment go, who on God's green earth is going to remove the stone? The way they said it, Jesus gives a hard teaching and they say, who then can live up to this? Who can do this? And Jesus' response is now pasted on T-shirts and bumper stickers because here's what he said. With man, this is impossible. You know what next? Come. With God, all things are possible. I thought about that verse whenever, who in the world is gonna remove the stone? There's many of you who are sitting in here today that are sitting at points in your life that might be deeply, deeply personal, and you're sitting there going, who on God's green earth is gonna move this? And you know the truth 
of how Jesus speaks. With man, this is impossible. You're going, I've tried and I've tried and I've tried to move this stone. I've tried to change them and they won't change. I've tried to change me and they won't change. I've tried to eat different. I've tried to take this medication. I've tried to please this boss. I've tried to be in control. It won't move. And I think as Jesus told his disciples and as he's about to show these women, with man, you're right, it's impossible. But with God, who will roll away the stone? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. Folks, when you're sitting in these moments and you're going, how's it going to move? How's it going to move? The Bible doesn't say, move it. You want to know what the Bible says over and over again? Look up. Look up. The psalmist says, I look to the hills. From where does my help come from? The psalmist is saying, look up, look to the hills. From where, eagerly anticipate, where does my help come from? And then the psalmist says, I look to the hills, from where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. In a very real way, when Lucy went, God Almighty, even if it was motivated by her own selfishness, by her own sin, what it's saying is when you throw your head back and it's motivated by your own selfishness, by your own lack of faith, keep your eyes up. Look up for where does my help come from? And the Bible is clear. There is no other place. Our help will come, but from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. The maker of heaven and earth, the maker and the sustainer, the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, the one who works all things after the counsel of his will, the one who moves Every element, the one who is sovereign and in control, even over the worst of things, he's still on the throne. Help comes from nowhere else, for there's no other name by which we must be saved, but at the name of Jesus. They look up and the stone was moved. In this section, I was reading last night, and I thought about this old song that was written by Rich Mullins, who died in the 90s. He was a Christian songwriter, and he wrote a song called My Deliverer. And in My Deliverer, Rich Mullins pens these words, and it says, the beginning of it says, Joseph took his wife and his child, and they went to Africa to escape the wrath of a deadly king. And it's speaking of the truth of the story of Jesus, that the king had determined somebody was going to usurp his throne, and it was a baby who'd been born, so he decided to kill all of these children, all of these firstborn males. And so Joseph and Mary take Jesus to Africa as a refugee. And in the song, it says that it presents this scene of all these kids who are sitting around, all these kids who their parents have tried to keep from them why they're going to Africa. They don't want to know people are trying to kill you. But like kids do, they pick up on little phrases here and there, even when their parents are looking in the back seat going, be quiet, this conversation isn't for you. They pick up enough and they realize, 
while somebody's trying to kill me. And then the scene Mullins presents is that out there are all of these kids who begin to sing this song. And in the song, it has these vocals of children singing these words, my deliverer is coming. My deliverer is standing by. And it has this voice of these kids. And this is the way it sounds. It says, my deliverer is coming. But it's kids' voices. My deliverer is standing by. My deliverer is coming. My deliverer is standing by. And I sat there at that moment, and I'm literally moved last night, thinking about all the aspects of human beings, these people that have this longing, that are dying for help. The abused wife who's sitting in a home desperately just going, God, help some way. A lonely orphan who's sitting there going, please let a family come get me. A ravaged husband who's working to the bone just to make enough money and comes home and nobody's appreciating. Parents who have sick children that are saying, please let there be a deliverance. Let there be the next pill. Let there be the next medical breakthrough. Let something happen to change the course. Children who are pleading that for their mother. The mentally ill individual who's going to bed at night and can't sleep that's going, God, let there be deliverance. Let my deliverer come. The Syrian refugee father whose picture cannot get out of my head, who's gritting his teeth, this deeply strong man who's just been on a raft, who's holding his one child like this, his larger child and his younger child, he's holding their whole body in his arm and he's weeping, gritting his teeth, you know, simultaneously so angry and so scared and desperately desiring for deliverance to come. Now think about this. And everybody in between, including the families that sit here that go, we have something good going here and we don't want what's happening in the world to descend upon our communities, upon our homes. We don't, as much as we're concerned about those kids, let it not happen to our kids. Bring deliverance. Now, imagine this, folks. The expectation of deliverance, the certainty like these kids, my deliverer is coming. The moment the deliverer comes, whatever that is, the moment the deliverance comes, the deliverer in this situation comes, what happens to the souls of the people? My deliverer is coming. My deliverer is standing by. What happens when my deliverer is here? Then when he actually delivers you, you've experienced it. You've experienced the deliverance. The darkness has broke. That's what amazes these women. The stone is rolled away. They look up. They see that it's been rolled back. It was very large. In entering the tomb, they see a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. You seek Jesus who, yes, was dead. Yes, you are in the chaos. You are in the confusion. Yes, you're in the midst of darkness. You look up. You seek Jesus. You go, I think he's coming. I believe he's coming. He is coming. Yes, he rose from the dead. He is not here. Now, let me just tell you something because some of you go, that's kind of cool. Like, 
He defeated death. Okay, but you got to understand this. I think this is one of the most misunderstood factors of the resurrection. Jesus Christ did not just defeat death. He didn't just rise from the grave. This isn't just chapter 5 when Jairus' daughter is raised from the dead. This isn't just the rising of Lazarus from the tomb. This is something way more significant than that. He didn't just defeat death. Listen to me. If you aren't listening now, listen to this. He destroyed death. Now, let me tell you how significant that is. The longing that you go back to of every human heart, sin comes into the world, death spreads to the whole creation because, and spreads to all men because all sinned, Romans says. So everything within your heart, this is what the Bible teaches. This is what God's telling you in this room, regardless of what you believe, what God is saying is what you experience in longing has now been made reality. God has defeated all that, brings darkness. God has destroyed the works of the devil, the Bible says, that have a stronghold on your heart, that have a stronghold on your home, that have a stronghold on our communities, that has a stronghold on our world. God has destroyed it. Now imagine for a minute, though all of creation, everything that exists in it, everything that you long for, that you go, that's just not it, is the stronghold of sin on the world, the realities of death clinching the world. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, he went into death. And then there's a song we sing at Easter that says, he trampled over death by death or through death. So you wonder about the silence of Saturday. Jesus dies on Friday. The scene goes, but then it doesn't come back till Sunday. What happened on Saturday and when Jesus rose, what happened? He went into, he embedded himself into death. He entered into sorrow. He entered into the whole pain of the world. He entered into all of our disobedience. He entered into all of the world's darkness. He entered into the world's death. That's why he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He went into the heart of it. And then when he rose from the dead, he decimated it. He destroyed it. So the stronghold that's on your heart, the stronghold that's on your home, the stronghold that's on our world, he defeated, but didn't just defeat, destroyed. Now, what does that mean? Because you go, well, we don't experience that. We still experience real life death. We still experience real life sin, real life sorrow, real life pain. Here's what it means. He, the Bible says, was the first fruits, the first one to go. And then all of us will come following. All of us will come following. Here's what that means. After the attacks in France, there was a man that went out, got a piano, I don't know if any of you guys saw this, and he began to sing John Lennon's song, Imagine. If you don't know Imagine, it's basically imagine a place where people actually treat each other with love and the world exists like this, okay? What I want you to see is John Lennon was not a Christian, but John Lennon had a longing that all of creation has, that you have, that I have, Remember we said everybody has the longing, but the answers are different. John Lennon had a longing 
deep in his gut. And the reason all these people rally around in France is because they all have the same longing as well. And here's what the resurrection tells you. The resurrection tells you that that hope is not just pie in the sky, but that hope is truth. That hope is secure. Death has been defeated. It just hasn't been fully applied. It hasn't just been fully applied. Like in a war, when the war gets won, but there's still mop-up activity that has to happen. The battle still exists, but the war is won. The war is won, folks. Death has been defeated. And that applies to everything in the world, everything in your life. But here's the fundamental difference where we all disagree how we're gonna get there. The Bible is very clear. There is only one Lord who saves. There's only one truth in which you want to be in the midst of to have all of your longings fulfilled. And it's in Jesus that in raising from the dead, God shows Jesus is Lord. Now, what does that mean? God shows Jesus is Lord. Because this is what happens to these women. These women are astonished and alarmed. The angel essentially says, Jesus is Lord, therefore the Lord's not dead because God doesn't die. He's alive. And here's what they say to him then. Follow him. Follow him. This is true. Follow him. Live the way God intended every human to live. And now you have the power to do it. The only way we can imagine a world like this with John Lennon, John Lennon got the longing right, he got the answer wrong. Humans can't fix the problem we created. We need to look to the hills for help to come from outside of ourselves. And that hope and help is found only in one place, Jesus. And folks, if Jesus is Lord, that means all that he said is true. That means we need to submit to everything he says. That means all of our biggest questions in life, even if they're deeply personal and the Bible confronts us and we don't like what it personally says, our question that has to be put to us is, do you believe Jesus rose from the dead? And if you do, then he's Lord. And if he's Lord, he's the Lord of life, that even when obedience, doing what he says feels like death, you have to believe in the end, it's life. Not just in the end, right now, his words are life because he's Lord. Here's the other thing I want you to see about the resurrection. The resurrection is fundamentally physical. It isn't pie in the sky. It's all about real life. It's all about how you live your life. From everything from your eating to your working to the way we do school, we pronounce the gospel. Later on in chapter 16, it says, go pronounce the gospel, the good news, to all of creation. What does that mean? That means we live our lives in such a way that we say, this is the way life was meant to be. It was only twisted and distorted because of sin, but his power enables us to do it. I want to end by reading to you from the gospel, from the letter of, to the Ephesians. Paul says this, speaking about the power that we need. He says, in what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? 
according to the working of his great might. What's the power? The same power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power working in those who believe. The same power that raised him, seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Now listen to this. And he put all things under Christ's feet. When he raised him from the dead, he ascended on high, placed him at the right hand of the Father. He put all things under his feet and gave him, Christ, his head to, hear this, the church. Who's the church? All of those who truly believe. He gave Christ his head to the church, which is his body. Now listen to this. The fullness of him, the fullness of Christ. He says the church The people of God is the fullness of him, is all of Christ. The body of Christ is the fullness of him who fills all things in every way. So what's he saying? How does God fill the world with Christ? Christ ascends and they're going, no, we still need you. And he's going, you have me. How? Through you. Through those who believe living the resurrected life in a land of darkness, chaos, confusion, and death. We live in every part of our lives saying Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord in the way we eat. Jesus is the Lord in the way we family. Jesus is Lord in the way we suffer. Jesus is Lord in the way we ask our questions. Jesus is the Lord in the way we fail because when we fail, we can look up at people and go, but I serve a Lord who saves, a Lord who forgives, a Lord who loves. The power of the resurrection has power for today tomorrow, and every day in the future. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for your grace and mercy. God, show us the power of the resurrection. You tell us that the same power that rose Christ from the dead lives in us. God, let it live in the way we suffer and in the way we celebrate. In Christ's name we pray, amen.